turn together in the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee, that, that knew not thee, shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God. And for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The text I call your attention to for our consideration this evening is verses 10 and 11. I'll read that again. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the thoughts of human beings too often are small minded and stingy thoughts. If we sin against someone, which too often we do, we are not quick to seek that person out or to apologize. Our thoughts quickly become thoughts of self-protection rather than righteous thoughts. 
our fear of consequences ends up trumping our concern for God and for the neighbor. Or if we are sinned against by someone else, as often happens as well, we are not too quick to forgive. Our thoughts become thoughts of payback rather than thoughts of mercy. Our desire of revenge trumps any concern to restore a relationship that has been hurt or lost. That is why so often there is little power in our words. Our words reflect our small-minded and stingy thoughts. They are words that end up taking life rather than to give life. They are words that end up destroying rather than to build up. This is what God is talking about when in verses 8 and 9, he speaks of your thoughts, speaking to his people, the people of Israel, the covenant nation, who are often living in sin. He speaks of your thoughts. But then beautifully, he goes on to say, but your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. God's thoughts are not calculating thoughts that seek a selfish advantage at the expense of truth. God's thoughts are thoughts that reflect the righteous character of God himself. God's thoughts are holy thoughts, and they are always holy thoughts. God's thoughts are good thoughts. They are true thoughts. They are righteous thoughts. God's thoughts are not thoughts of petty revenge. They are not thoughts that come out of a short temper. They are thoughts, rather, of mercy The thought of God is to seek and to save the lost sheep who has sinned against him. The thought of God is to forgive the wicked when the wicked forsakes his way and returns to him. The thought of God is to show the sure mercies of David to his covenant people who hear his word. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And that goes a long way to explaining why there is such power in the word of God. His word is a word that not only tells us what to do or what to be, his word is a word that gives life. It's a word that builds up, and it's a word that never returns to him empty. It never returns to him void, but it prospers wherever he sends it. And that's the theme of the sermon I call your attention to this evening, God's word prospering where he sends it. First, we will identify the word that he sends both the word itself and the fact that he sends it and where he sends it. And then secondly, we'll notice that this word has power and it is the power to give life. And then we'll conclude with the application, which is our calling to believe this word of God. God's word prospering where he sends it. First, the word he sends. Secondly, it's life-giving power. And then third, believing it. So what is the word that God sends? Well, if you want to understand the word of God, one thing you can do to start with is just to look around you, especially on a beautiful day like today. It's a beautiful time of year when all of the creation is coming back to life. If you had walked outside during the months of winter, you would have noticed the silence. Silence so deep. You can almost feel the silence. But when you wake up on a spring morning after a thunderstorm, you're greeted with the noise of life, the music of the birds, the smell of blossoming flowers. It's beautiful. And 
you ask yourself, how did that happen? How did this beautiful world around us that is so rich and so full of life come into being? Well, children, you probably noticed in the months of April and March that there was a lot of rain that fell. And of course, last night we had a thunderstorm. And before the months of March and April, there was all of the snow that fell in January and February, and that snow began to melt. And all of the rainfall and all of the snow melt made the soil fertile. And then the sun got warm. And when the sun got warm and began to shed its rays upon that fertile soil, it began to coax back out of dormancy all of those living things so that the grass became green and the trees began to bud out with foliage and with, with, uh, with flowers and blossoms. And those plants that sprout and grow today will grow into mature plants that will yield seeds that will provide the crop for next year and will produce grain that will be turned into bread for our tables. This whole process that we are familiar and that we are witnessing right now in the springtime is so orderly and consistent that people say that it all happens according to the laws of nature. There are these laws of nature that are consistent and orderly and happen the same way all of the time. And the law of nature says that water will evaporate when the sun beats down upon it and it will turn into a mist in the heavens that form into clouds and those clouds will spit out rain upon the earth that will make the grass green. The law of nature says that seeds that are buried in the soil and watered will germinate and sprout into green plants that bring forth fruit. And there's something true about that idea of the law of nature, that orderly and consistent way in which all things work in the world around us. But that's only because standing behind this whole process is the lawgiver. Standing behind this whole process in which the dead world that exists in winter comes to the beautiful, vibrant life that we see in spring, standing behind it all is the Word of God. Jehovah speaks, the heavens appear. He breathes, and lo, each shining sphere in splendor stands arrayed. We just sang that from Psalter 85. That's the power that brings the world around us back to life. That's the power that brought the world into being in the beginning. You children remember the story. In the beginning, there was darkness. In the beginning, there was nothing. And then God spoke. He declared his word. He said, let there be light. Let there be a firmament. And the world came into being. He is the God who calls the things that be not as though they were, according to Romans 4, verse 17. He's the God who framed the worlds by his word, according to Hebrews 1, verse, Hebrews 11, verse 3. If you want to know the amazing power of God's word, start by looking around you at the world that he made by his word. But Isaiah is only speaking of the Word of God and creation as an illustration. He uses the word as in verse 10. And that word as indicates that he's making a comparison. He's using a simile. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven 
and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. As the rain brings life to the creation around us and to the world around us, so, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. The word of God that Isaiah has in mind is not just the word out there in the creation that brings to life all living things, but there's a special word that Isaiah has in mind. It's the word that he has been proclaiming in this book of Isaiah, a word that he has been proclaiming to the covenant people in their captivity, in their sorrow, a people who have it felt to them, been forsaken by the Lord, cast off into chains of Babylon. But Isaiah comes and he proclaims the word of the Lord to them, and it's a word of redemption. It's a word of grace. It's a word that comes, first of all, in the form of a calling. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, ho, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye. Buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear unto me, verse 3, and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Let the wicked forsake his way, verse 7, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. It's the word of a calling. Come! And attached to that calling is a promise. A promise that God makes to everyone who hears that word of calling and believes that word of calling. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. For, that word for, is leading into the promise for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not, your thought, are not your ways. Whereas your thoughts are thoughts of revenge, whereas your thoughts are thoughts of evil, whereas your thoughts are small-minded and stingy, my thoughts are thoughts of mercy, my thoughts are thoughts of pardon to every sinner who comes to me seeking forgiveness." Your thirst shall be satisfied by the waters of life that I give you abundantly without price. Come, receive and live. That's my promise, God says, to everyone who hears and believes my word. And it's a word of calling with a promise attached to it that has substance underneath it. It's a promise that rests on the sure mercies of David and the everlasting covenant of grace. It's a promise that rests on the redemption accomplished by Christ for every one of his sheep. It's a promise that God makes to each one of his people personally and individually out of the deep well of the eternal love that he has for them. As the rain comes down and waters the earth, so that it brings forth buds and flowers and life, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall prosper where I send it. And that brings up another important aspect of this word, which is that it is a word that God sends. That calling 
with a promise attached to it, with the substance of the covenant underneath it, God sends that word where he wants to. That's in keeping with the illustration of the text. If you lived in Isaiah's world, you would have been much more aware than you probably are of rain clouds and storms. In Isaiah's world, there were no irrigation pipes that could pump water into the fields in the time of a drought. Life depended on rain clouds coming and the rainy season that would water the fields so that there would be crops and something to eat for the people that year. Sometimes we like to complain when rainy days spoil our plans. But the farmers in Israel prayed that God would send rain clouds, send rain to us to water the earth so that the earth might bring forth abundantly and so that we may have bread for our tables and nourishment for our children. They were very aware that rain will only produce life when and where God sends it. And if you've ever visited a desert, you know what it means for there to be no rain. Not only is it hot and dry in a desert, but there's no life. There's tumbleweeds that blow dry in the, in the breeze, but there's no life. And so there are some areas where God is not pleased to send his word. There are some areas where God is not pleased to send his word at all. Not this word that Isaiah was preaching to the Israelites in captivity, that word of calling, come to the waters, that had that, that promise of life and the covenant underneath it. God doesn't send that word everywhere. There have been entire tribes and nations of people who have lived and died their whole life without hearing that redemptive word that Isaiah is preaching here in this text. They heard the word of God in creation. They heard the chirping of the birds. And they heard the testimony of the heavens which declared to them the glory of God who made them. But they did not hear the redemptive word, the word of the gospel in Christ. There are some people who have heard that word, who have heard that word with their ears. Maybe they even responded to that word. Maybe they even responded to that word with apparent enthusiasm. They spoke excitedly about the gospel. Maybe they even changed some things in their lives. But in the end, though they heard the word with external ears, their hearts ended up being hardened against that word. And they did not truly hear the word. You remember the parable of Jesus, the parable of the soils, when he speaks of the seed, which is the word of God, being cast on all different kinds of soils. And some of the seed falls on soil where there are thorns and there are weeds. And first that that, that seed sprouts forth and it, it seems to, to have life. It seems like it's going to grow into a mature plant. There's apparent enthusiasm in this here, but then the cares and concerns of life choke out the word that was there and the person is hardened against the word. That's because God did not send the word to them. He sent it to them externally, but he did not send it into the heart. 
But, beloved people of God, God has sent His Word to you. He has sent His Word to you as a congregation. He has sent His Word to you historically by giving you ministers of the Word who would preach the Gospel to you. He has been sending the Word to you during your time of vacancy as pastors occupied this pulpit and preached the gospel and preached the sure mercies of God in Jesus Christ in the Holy Scriptures. And now he sends his word to you again by providing you with a pastor to preach that word. And beloved, that's the promise that I must make to you and that I have made to you this morning when I took that vow and when I signed that formula The promise was, I will preach this word. I will proclaim this word. I will stand before you as an ambassador who proclaims the word of God, the redemptive word of God in Christ to you as God's herald to you. And the elders are here to hold me accountable to that promise. And you are here as believers who hold the office of believer to have your Bibles open and to hold me accountable to that promise. But God has sent you a herald. He has sent you an ambassador. He has sent his word to you. And not only has he sent that word to you as a congregation, but he sends that word to you personally and individually as the personal and individual objects of his love and grace. He sends his word to your families. He sends his word to you who believe in him, who lay hold upon that word by your faith. He sends his word to you who are thirsty for the waters of life and who long for the bread that Jesus Christ gives to you. And his word to you is this, come, come to the waters, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which, is, which does not satisfy? Turn unto me, know my thoughts to you that they are high thoughts, much higher than your thoughts, thoughts of grace and mercy. Come. That's his word to you, beloved. It's not an offer. It's not just good intentions on God's part so that he wants to give you these things if you will just believe, but maybe he won't really give them to you in the end. It's not just good intentions. It's his word. It's his word to you, to you whom he loves with an everlasting love. It's his word to you that you hear when the preacher declares to you, thus saith the Lord. It's his word to your children that they will hear in the catechism room. It's his word to you who perhaps are unable to come tonight but are listening at home because you are shut in. And that word will come to you when the pastor and when the elders and the deacons bring that word to you and visit you in your homes. God sends his word to you. His word, his redemptive word. And it's a powerful word. A life-giving word. It shall not return to me void, God says, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, when you look at that statement, 
in verse 11, that it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. We have to understand that that's also true from a negative point of view. We believe that our God is a sovereign God. We believe that our God is a sovereign God when he chooses to save some. Paul Paul says that God has predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will in Ephesians 1 verse 5. The canons define election as the purpose of God to choose out of the whole human race a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ. That's canons head one, article seven. And then having chose in his people in eternity, he works faith in them. He brings life to them. And life and salvation comes to them flowing out of election like water flows out of a fountain. God is sovereign when he chooses some unto salvation and then brings them to life and salvation. God is also sovereign when he passes over others. That God chooses some can only mean that he does not choose others. And God's word with respect to those whom he does not choose is not neutral with respect to them. If God's word has a life-giving and a saving effect on his own people, it also has an effect on the reprobate. It has a hardening effect. It has the kind of effect that it had on Pharaoh so that though Moses stood before him time after time after time proclaiming the word of God, thus saith the Lord, let my people go, Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder and harder against that word until finally He ran right into the Red Sea and perished in his unbelief. The word of God never returns to him void, but it accomplishes what he pleases. We sometimes feel sympathy for those who never hear the gospel and perish in their unbelief. They never hear what Isaiah is proclaiming here. And and, and we say, how is that fair? That never having heard the word of salvation that they should perish. They, they never had a chance, we think. And you know, it's not wrong to have a feeling of sympathy toward those who never heard the word and perish in unbelief. We ought to feel a certain sympathy. And what that sympathy ought to do is motivate us. It ought to motivate us to send missionaries who will go to those places where the word hasn't been heard and who will proclaim that word, who will say, come, why do you spend money for that which does not satisfy? Come, turn unto the Lord, let the wicked forsake his way and he will abundantly pardon. We want others to hear the word of life because we know what a powerful effect that word has had on our lives. What a travesty that so many people live their lives without ever hearing the word. That feeling of sympathy is what motivated Paul on his missionary journeys to go all over Asia Minor, all over Greece, even to Rome. It's what motivated him to go always to the synagogues of the Jews first, even though he could could expect to be rejected there and was many times. But he loved them. 
He loved them. He had a heart for them in their fallen condition. He wanted them to hear the word of the gospel. He wanted to see them coming to faith in Christ. He says in Romans 9, which is the same uh, passage that teaches so clearly sovereign election and reprobation, he says, I could wish myself were cursed for my brothers according to the flesh. It's right to have a heart for the lost. That heart for the lost will motivate us to bring the word of Christ to them as much as we have opportunity. But we must remember that God is the one who sends his word. And he sends that word sovereignly where he desires. And that word never returns to him void. Even when that word has the effect of hardening hearts. Even when that word becomes a savor of death unto death in those who perish, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16. A man may never hear the word of the gospel, but he does see the glory of God in the heavens. He knows his maker. He knows the eternal power and Godhead that made him and made all things. And Paul says that's enough. That's sufficient to leave him without excuse. And as for those who hear the word of the gospel and even taste the goodness of God, having heard of it with external ears and nevertheless reject that word and perish in unbelief, we must understand that also is the purpose of God. Reprobation is a terrible decree, as John Calvin says. Terrible not because it's unjust or unfair, but terrible because it reveals the awful glory and justice of God, and it puts us in our place. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul said? Our words do not have power over life and death, but God's word does. Sometimes it acts like a sword, a sword against his enemies to destroy them. Also, from that negative point of view, in which the Word of God works a hardening on the reprobate, God's Word never returns to him void. It accomplishes the thing whereto he sends it. But that negative point isn't the main point of Isaiah in our text. His main point is positive. The Word of God is a powerful Word. It's a life-giving Word a life-giving power in his people whom he loves and whom he knows as his own sons and daughters. God doesn't send rain primarily so that he can leave other places dry as a desert. No, God sends rain primarily so that the grass will become green and the birds will chirp and the trees will bring forth and blossom in the place where he sends it. He sends the rain so that it will give seed to the sower and so that it will give bread to the eater. And that's why God sends his word. His eye is not so much on the reprobate who reject him and refuse to return to him. His eye is on you, beloved. His eye is on your children whom he is gathering in your generations. His eye is on the elect from the nations who maybe are walking in darkness for a time, but who will be called into the marvelous light of the Son of God. And his purpose is to give you life. His purpose is to give you salvation in his covenant. His purpose is to speak to you and to speak to you as a father speaks to his children, to comfort you, to bless you. You are the apple of his eye. 
You are his pearl of great price, whom he treasures, and which he purchased at great cost to himself. That's why he sends a preacher of the gospel to you today, beloved. That's the thought of God that stands behind every sermon that you hear and that you will hear, the Lord willing, in days to come. So long as that sermon is a faithful exposition and application of the Holy Scriptures. That's why God sends His Spirit along with the Word that is preached. The Spirit, who our creed describes as the Lord and giver of life. The Spirit who blows on old dusty bones in a dry desert so that they live again. The Spirit who calls the things that be not as though they were and brings light out of darkness. The Spirit who regenerates, who resurrects from the dead. God who knows you and shows you in his love sends his word and spirit to you. And he does that because he does not want you to remain in death and ignorance. He wants you to know his thoughts towards you. He wants you to experience the life that he has for you. So he speaks that life into being from within you so that it is there where it was not before. He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart. He infuses new qualities into the will which before was dead, but now he quickens and makes alive. His purpose in sending his word is that you might live You might live in the knowledge of your God. That's why he sent his beloved son into the world in the first place. His beloved son, Jesus Christ, who, remember, is the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. That's why Jesus came into this world. That's why he was willing to spend all of that time teaching and doing those miracles, even though he was opposed relentlessly at every end by the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's why he was willing to suffer all his life long until he was nailed to the cross of Calvary and died the accursed death on the tree. That's why he did not shy away from descending into hell itself and experiencing the darkness of death. It was the word of God to you. The word that God sent to his elect people, revealing the thoughts that God has for you. The great links that he will go to lift you up unto the heights of salvation. It was all to give you life. And that word that God sends is a word that will not return to him void, will not return to him empty. No, that word that as a seed was buried into the tomb, emerged out of the dust of death in life in the resurrection, and ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And there that word stands before the Father as our advocate, as our righteousness. And he declares unto you by his word and spirit, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, who is destitute in himself, and needy. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come and buy money, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. 
That's the word of God to you, beloved. Do you believe that word? <coughs> Do you believe that word? We need to realize how much we are inclined not to believe that word. I know we believe it. We say we believe it, but we understand it intellectually. But how much we are not inclined to believe that word. I mean specifically how much we are not inclined to believe that word of God toward us that is a word of life and salvation. Because we tend to think that God's thoughts are like our thoughts, don't we? We tend to bring God down to our level, to make him in our image. And our way of thinking is often small-minded and stingy. So often we are petty. So often we are unforgiving. So when we sin against God, when we understand the guilt that we have accrued against him, we tend to think that he will be petty and he will be unforgiving as well. So often we are unfaithful. We make promises and then we break those promises. And so when God makes a promise to us and he says, I will be your God, and I will show you the sure mercies of David, we tend to think he's not going to be faithful to that promise. How can he be faithful to such, such a promise? He will break it. He will be like us. He will be like me. You see, beloved, the thoughts of God are not your thoughts. And his ways are not your ways or my ways. When he says something, he means what he says, and he means it exactly as he says it. When he says to you by his word and spirit, I have abundantly pardoned all of your sins. Those sins are gone. They're gone. They're at the bottom of the sea where they will never be heard from again, never used against you. Never become a weight that drags you down into the darkness of despair or even into hell. They cannot be used against you, for he has abundantly pardoned you. When he says, I will always forgive you, I will always be your God, I will never forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the fires, the flame will not kindle upon you, but I will bring you clean through. He means it. And not only does he mean his word of promise to you, but he has the ability to bring it to pass. He's God. His word is power. His word is life. It's the same word, beloved, that brought the heavens and the earth into being. Now he says, you are my child. I love you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. He's not like you and me. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. They're much higher. Do you believe his word to you? 
That doesn't mean believing his word is an easy route. That doesn't mean believing his word takes immediately all of the pain and all of the suffering out of our lives here below in this fallen and cursed world. There are thorns and there are briars in our lives. There are sins that we commit and we'll continue to commit over the course of our life. And there's guilt connected to those sins. And there's shame that we experience in connection with that guilt. There are sins that others commit against us. And then we bear suffering and hurt because of those sins that have been committed against us. There are hardships. There are difficulties. We live in a fallen world. And the Christian life in that fallen world is often a life of bearing the cross. It's often a life of self-denial, even in the face of great difficulties and great challenges. Yet, even as we pass through that sometimes difficult Christian life, this is God's promise to everyone who believes in Him. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. There is peace with God for everyone who is justified by His faith. There is the hope of sanctification and progress in the battle against sin and the battle against this ungodly world. There is ultimately the hope of entering into life itself where the lion will lay down with the lamb and where all will be at peace where we will sit at the feet of our Savior and we will look in His face and He will speak His word to us. And we will know Him and He will know us. That's His word to you, beloved. And that word that He sends to you, that life-giving, powerful word, will prosper in the thing that He sends it to accomplish. Believe that word, beloved, and live by that faith. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy life-giving, powerful Word, which is a Word of mercy to us, a Word of salvation. We pray, O Father, that Thou wilt open our eyes, that they may be eyes of faith, and that we may come in answer to Thy call. And find that there is wine and milk for us that we may buy without price. And that there is life for us that we receive by our faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Father, that that life-giving word may lead us on as we do face challenges and trials and difficulties in this fallen and cursed world. That as the thorn and the briar come up, that the word of God may come and pull out those thorns and briars so that the myrtle and the fir tree grows and there is the experience and the joy of life for us. We pray that thou would bless us now as we conclude this service of worship. Send us away from thy house with thy blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.